Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We are in the middle of a study uh, through the book of Acts, and uh, the book of Acts chronicles the uh, the beginning of the church as, uh, as it unfolds. The Holy Spirit is gifted to the apostles, and we see them forming the very beginning stages of the church. Uh, it has taken us about six months to get through chapter 9, and from this point forward, what we're going to see is one particular life highlighted for much of the rest of the book, and that is the Apostle Paul. We see his origin story as his name was Saul. Um, today, like last week, we're going to look at two different translations of Scripture as we get started for a couple different reasons. Um, the translations used kind of give us insight, and Paul later in his life in Acts chapter 22, and we'll get there somewhere in the next three to five years, Acts chapter 22. Um, but when Paul talks about this moment in his life, he adds some details in Acts chapter 22 that uh, some of the translations don't include. And so, uh, and some of them do include those details. They're from Paul, and they're his autobiographical, his autobiographical uh, account, and so some translations have included them. I think they're important details, so we're going to look at two different translations. So if you're confused on why we're doing that, that is the explanation to get started, if you have your notes in front of you, Saul was an energetic persecutor and very religious. I cannot stress this much. He was an energetic persecutor. He took this as his very passion in life to persecute Christians who were following after the way of Jesus. Now, the way he would categorize himself is the second way. He would say, I'm very religious. You call me a persecutor, I'm just religious. You call me very energetic about persecuting people who are Christians, and I'm telling you I'm very religious. We'll unpack that in a few moments, but he was not an accidental persecutor. We begin in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let's unpack what's happening here. Saul is still persecuting. He's an energetic persecutor, and he's breathing threats and murder to anyone who would follow the Lord. He goes to the high priest, who at this time we believe is Caiaphas, and he asks Caiaphas for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. And he's asking, he, he's, he's asking them in advance, I'm on my way to you. If any of your people or people that you know belong to the way, the way is, of course, the way of Jesus. This is how they were identified. So today we might be called Christians or followers of Jesus or evangelicals or anything like that. Back then they said they're following this way because it was a way Jesus had identified to have access to the Father that was not the way they were used to. So they identified him as the way and, they said, and he said, if there's anybody following this way, when I get there, I want to take them 
and I want to bound them up and take them back to Jerusalem. So we last saw Saul in Acts chapter 8 when he was wreaking havoc on the church. He was taking men and women, dragging them out of their homes, committing them to prison. We saw him uh, be at the very feet where uh, Stephen the uh, martyr is killed. This is a picture of an angry, violent man, absolutely convinced of his own righteousness. So as we get to know Saul, we identify this. He wasn't seeking Jesus when Jesus sought him. I like this. I like that sometimes people are looking for Jesus. There have been moments in my life where I have been genuinely looking for Jesus. There have been moments where I've been around people who have genuinely been saying, uh, I want to find Jesus. But I find often in my own life, I wasn't seeking Jesus necessarily when Jesus sought me. This is what happened with Saul. Saul was decidedly against Jesus when Jesus decided he was for Saul. So Saul did the persecuting work under the direct approval of the highest religious authorities. This is Caiaphas. And in his faith, Saul trusted his own personal resume for his version of salvation. He trusted his own personal resume. So even after Saul became a Christian... He remembered his days as a persecutor. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he described it this way. He says, if anyone else has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, if you think you're all that, wait till you meet me. If you think your resume is impressive, wait till you see mine. If you think you've done enough good works to earn your way into heaven, wait till you hear about me. If you think you have confidence in the flesh, Paul says this. I have more. And he explains it. He says this, I've been circumcised the eighth day. In other words, I have the right identity. From the moment I was born, I had the right identity. He says I'm of the, uh, of the people of Israel. In other words, I am pure. I am part of God's chosen nation. He says of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, indicating how he was part of this holy lineage. He says this, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he's righteous right from birth. Uh, he says this, concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. In other words, I have memorized the law. I've put it into practice. I am perfect. Now, he's not using that word in hyperbole like this pizza is perfect, right? He's not using it in, 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 a, in a sarcastic manner. He's literally saying, I know the law and I've kept it. The Ten Commandments, the hundreds of points of the law, I have kept them. He says this, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I'm passionate about this. And then he says this, concerning the righteousness, as to the righteousness under the law, I am blameless. I am without blame. You cannot take any portion of the law and say, but Saul, you haven't measured up here. I have kept the law. If you have any confidence in the flesh, I have more. You get the idea where Saul is coming from? This is what he trusted for salvation. Now in Galatians 1, verse 13 and 14, he adds a little bit more to his background. He says this, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, which is Acts chapter 8, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. He explains himself. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people 
and I was extremely zealous for the, what's the next words? Traditions of my father. So here's Saul. He's highly educated. He thought that Christianity was both wrong and deceptive because it pulled away, it pulled people away from the law, away from the traditions, away from everything they had known. And perhaps he took um, example from characters in the Old Testament um, who would be honored for holding the law so true. And maybe Saul thought he was trying to stop the plague of a false religion, but he honestly believed he was doing God a favor by eliminating Christians. He was religious, he was sincere, and he was a persecutor, and he was wrong. Now here's the thing, the tragedy of trusting yourself for your salvation is it's really hard for you to imagine salvation for anyone else. Because when you begin to trust your own self for salvation, it's really hard to admit other people have achieved what you have achieved. And this is where Saul uh, came from. The temptation is that you begin to look down on others and it becomes harder to welcome people in the kingdom that you have built for yourself. That's why grace is so vital. This is why Christianity is referred to the way. It's the earliest name for the Christian movement and a fitting one. It's used five times in the book of Acts. And it means that Christians, uh, that Christianity is more than a belief or a set of opinions or a set of rules. It is the way, singular, the only way of getting access to God the Father. Um, We move on and Saul experiences a divine interruption. Um, this is when you'll notice in your notes there's going to be two different translations. We begin in verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around, or shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, let's say these words together, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must, be, what you must do. Now, God does not normally confront sinners with the heavenly light and an audible voice from heaven. Otherwise, he would be interrupting our days quite often. (laughs) Am I right? How many can, yes, that would be the case. But here, this is a very special occasion. Uh, In fact, in Acts 22, when Paul was talking about this, uh, he revealed that this happened in middle of the day. So at midday, whatever that looks like, 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock, when the sun is shining at its already brightest, Paul said that this light was even brighter than the sun. Now, Saul's reaction was to fall to the ground. And when you're reading this narrative, uh, I don't think it's because he was in honor or reverence of God. I'm pretty sure he was just scared out of his mind. I think he was terrified. And so Jesus Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, kind of an insight to uh, Scripture, whenever you see someone's name repeated twice, it's not because they're in trouble. Um, That's what it would be in my household, right? 
maybe your household. You would call out the name of your children and you do it twice, or maybe you would use their full legal name. <laughs> Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Saul, Saul, that doesn't mean that God's angry, but he's sad. In fact, the other two times you hear Jesus using these words uh, repeatedly when he's identifying a person, uh, uh, Luke 10, he says, Martha, Martha. Matthew 23, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's to display deep emotion, but not necessarily anger. Now, here's the thing. As the heavenly light shone on him and overwhelmed him, Saul was confronted by the true nature of his crime. He was persecuting God, not man. Saul thought he was serving God by attacking Christians. But he discovered he was actually fighting God. Uh, this has been sadly true through history. Often those who are convinced they are doing God a favor by attacking people are often doing much worse persecution on their own. He says this, he says, why are you persecuting me? We should know that when Jesus said persecuting me, we later see that he revealed himself as Jesus. This appearance of Jesus here is further proof that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is God. But he goes on with this sentence. He says this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now this statement from Jesus was actually a really, really quick illustration for Saul. I found this image of what a goad might look like. It's a long, sharp stick used to get an ox going the way you wanted when you were plowing a field. Yeah, you said ouch, right, Jamie? Yeah, ouch. One jabbed, uh, one jab on the hind legs and the ox would move and cooperate. Essentially, in this illustration, Saul is the ox, <laughs> right? By the way, that's flattering, right? Um... I won't say that. If you, um, yeah, it's just, it's just not a flattering illustration for Saul. He's saying, you're acting like an ox here, and it's hard for you to kick against these goads. In other words, Saul was being stubborn, but Saul was valuable. The ox were very valuable, right? It's a very valuable instrument for the farmer but he was stubborn, and he was valuable, but potentially useful to the master's service. And so Jesus had to goad Saul in the right direction. And goading Saul caused pain, and yet inst instead of submitting to Jesus over and over in his lifetime, Saul would kick against those goads. And the farmer would use that goad to move the ox in a certain way, and instead of moving and relieving himself from that pain of the goad, he would kick against the goad. He would be summer, stub, stubborn and just stand his ground. I won't stay here too long because I don't think we have an issue with stubbornness in our congregation. But doesn't it feel like sometimes we're holding on longer than we should? And so God gives us the same test over and over again. What's interesting to me is we don't get a lot of insight from Saul in terms of instances in his life where Jesus has tried to get his attention before like if we're already at the point where Jesus has to audibly speak and have a bright light 
assault him during the day and throw him off his balance and onto the floor, what other things has God tried to do to get his attention over the years? What other things? And repeatedly Saul was stubborn. He would kick against the goads. He was valuable. He was potentially useful, but he was stubborn. This shows really the great patience that Jesus has for us. Boy, he was the persecuted one, yet his concern was for the effect it had on Saul. Shows the tenderheartedness of Jesus. Something was goading Saul's conscience. And despite all the outward confidence, there was something inside of him that was no doubt bothering him, and he kicked against it. He knew it was there, but he kicked against it and he remained stubborn. And the unease may have started perhaps with Stephen's prayer back in uh, Acts chapter 7. Remember what Stephen's last words were when he was dying after being stoned? He asked for forgiveness for those that were committing this crime. Saul was standing there. Perhaps this uh, movement from God was a direct answer to Stephen's prayer. It leads us to an interesting thought about uh, meeting Jesus. Because encountering Jesus is an overwhelmingly good thing. Encountering Jesus doesn't always feel good, though. And the fact that Saul was trembling and astonished by all this reminds us that it is not always pleasant to have a heaven, heavenly dramatic encounter. Saul was terrified by this experience. He was not filled with warm, uh, uh, glowing thoughts. And typically, we want to keep distance from every uh, authority figure that we have that can correct our behavior. Just as people, we like to do that. Uh, we try to keep our distance from the government, right? Uh, we try to keep our distance from the principal, uh, from, from the cops who are behind us. We try to keep our distance from any authority figure because it's not pleasant. It's always, not always easy. And so here Saul has this encounter with Jesus. And some of us, I think, might think, boy, if an angel from heaven would just come down and make my day pleasant... And this is what is happening here for Saul, but it wasn't necessarily a warm, fuzzy feeling kind of moment. It was a come-to-Jesus literal moment. Uh, in response to this life, Saul undoubtedly shut his eyes as tight as he could. Uh, Jesus still appeared for him. Uh, in this encounter, Saul learned that the gospel that he, uh, that he was persecuting would be the gospel he preached his whole life. And in this encounter, he asked two questions. And this is kind of why, where we want to settle our attention today. Uh, he asks two questions. The first one is this. Everyone say those words together. Who are you, Lord? It's interesting. Jesus showed us exactly who God is, and he can answer that question. Paul spends the rest of his life wanting to know, who is this Jesus? He says it this way in Philippians. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage in order that I may know Christ. And so he says in verse 10, I may know him and the power of his resurrection, so that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of his life. I love that through the course of his life, Jesus answered this question in Paul's life. Paul asks it in Acts chapter 9, and for the rest of his life, he spent his life pursuing who Jesus is. Paul actually answers it 
this question for himself. So we're going to let Paul speak for himself in Colossians 1. I just want to read these verses so you can hear him testify about who Jesus is. Colossians 1 and verse 15 says this. Who's Jesus? This is what Paul says later in his life. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He exists before anything was and created and is supreme over all creations. For through him, Jesus, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see, the things we cannot see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all the creation in his hand. Who is Jesus? Paul goes on. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Jesus Christ. And through him, Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Who are you, Lord? He asked this impossible question to Jesus. And Jesus says, I am Jesus. And through the rest of his life, Paul learns who Jesus is. In these verses, he shares with us, first of all, Jesus is the image of God. I can't tell you how important Colossians 1 is for a follower of Jesus Christ. Because in this, you are going to get these uh, truths on who is Jesus and what separates Jesus from anyone else who has ever lived. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, if by any means you're going to defend your faith, you must recognize who Jesus is and who everybody else isn't. We have to come to a conclusion on who Jesus is because um, there will be people that come in your life and say, man, he was a great teacher, wasn't he? He was a good prophet, wasn't he? If you've ever had a conversation with a Muslim, they'll tell you, they'll acknowledge Jesus' life, and they'll even agree to some point and say, yes, he was a prophet. If you've ever had a conversation with someone from the Mormon faith, they'll acknowledge Jesus' life, and they'll say, yeah, he was a good teacher, wasn't he? And if we are not careful in our faith, we will acquiesce to other faiths, and before we know it, we have watered down who Jesus is. The reason Paul was writing to the Colossians, by the way, is because they believed in something, uh, they were forming what's called syncretism. And it's this way of looking at your faith where, uh, how many of you like a good buffet? Right? Am I talking anyone's language? I like a good buffet because you just get to go and try a little bit of this and then you try a little bit of this. And then you realize you like that, so you take a little lot more of that. And you just go through. And when you're done, you get to do it all over again. And you take it. And this is what the Colossians were doing. They were syncret it was the way of syncretism, where they were going through all of their different faiths that they had been exposed to. And they said, oh, Jesus is good. Boy, so is Zeus. Isn't Zeus good? By the way, this other God is really good, too. And we should have sexual sacrifices. Let's do that, too. And we should probably offer kids as sacrifices. Let's do that, too. And Jesus said to be nice to people. We'll put a little bit of that there. But let's do this other thing, too, because that's really, this is what they were doing. So when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, the very first chapter, he says, by the way, the mystery of God is Jesus. He is the image of God. He says this in Colossians 1.15. 
The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's saying Jesus Christ, what we see in Jesus Christ, he is the visible image of who we cannot see. No one else in the history of earth gets to make that claim. He's the image of the invisible God. John said it this way, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. He goes on and he says this, Jesus is the ruler over all creation. Colossians 1 and verse 15, the phrase is this, the firstborn over all creation. This does not mean that he was created. This has nothing to do with age. It has everything to, everything to do with position. He wasn't born or created. He was first. And he is to be first in our relationships, in our identity, in family, in our money, in finances, uh, in business. He is to be first. Nothing gets aligned in our life until we align with Jesus first. And when you're out in nature and you get turned around, uh, you, you get what's called a compass, and a compass points you to true north, and then all of a sudden you can make sense of where you are. This is who Jesus is. He is first. He is the ruler over all creation. Uh, uh, the image of God, I should say, the ruler of all creation. Number three, Jesus is the creator of all. So there in first, uh, Colossians 1, verse 16, it says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things we can see, things we can't see, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When you think about the Grand Canyon, when you think about Crater Lake, when you think about the Pacific Ocean, when you think about the Evergreens, when you think about uh, all of these images... Jesus is the creator of all. Four, Jesus is eternal. There's no beginning. There's no end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He existed before even the birth of, with Mary. He is eternal. So he's eternal. Not only that, he's the sustainer. Colossians 1.17 says this, And in him all things hold together. Jesus is the sustainer. Um... It's hard sometimes when we think about God the Father, perhaps we have different views of what a father is, and maybe we grew up with an absentee parent, or maybe we grew up with a father who was abusive, so it's hard to make sense of that metaphor. But this is the one I think that helps us here. He is the sustainer. In him, all things hold together. When we give our life to Jesus, he holds it together. And if we want to live a life separate from God, then don't be shocked when he allows you to live a life separate from him and things fall apart. He is the sustainer. Uh, verse 6, Jesus is the head of the church. Because of that relationship, Jesus lived for and loved the church and died for the church. We are the body and we are all just part of the church. He is the head. That's why when we go through the Bible, we try not to pick and choose what we teach because Jesus is the authority, and so we just go through Scripture. We are His, and He is the head of the church. Uh, number seven, Jesus is alive. Uh, look what it says here. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. To be clear, this has never happened before. No one who was ever dead has now been alive. Now, here's the thing. We commemorate people when they die. Flowers and shrines and pictures and candles. 
Libby and I were at a celebration of life this last week, and we honored the person that had passed away because when they pass away and they're laid to rest, there is no resurrection that allows them to come back in this life. You can visit where the body of Buddha lays. You can visit where the body of Muhammad lays, where Joseph Smith lays, but you cannot visit where the body of Jesus lays. He's alive. He was seen among witnesses. He had a meal with his disciples. He lived for 120 days after, or he was seen by 120 people for, for weeks after his resurrection. He is alive. And then number eight, he is God. Jesus is God. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So Jesus wasn't crucified because he healed people. He wasn't crucified because he did things on the Sabbath. He, was, uh, he wasn't crucified because he taught in the synagogue. He was crucified because he made the claim that he was God. Jesus is God, entering into humanity. He's the creator into creation. He was God. He is God. And then lastly, Jesus is the reconciler. There's beautiful verses in Colossians 1.20. He says this, Through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether there are things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He reconciles us to him. So here's the thing. Look at your list, those nine things on who Jesus is. He is the image of God. He is the ruler over all creation. He is the creator of all. He is eternal. He is the sustainer. He's the head of the church. He is alive. He is God. And he is the reconciler. No one in, no one in the history of the world can make claim to all of those. Nobody. And so this is why we gather. This is why we worship. This is why it's so important for us to be in our Bibles and to listen to the Holy Spirit as he leads us. Because if we cannot get this doctrinal theological understanding that Jesus is this the rest of our faith begins to crumble people say well I love my Jesus I don't like your Jesus what they're really saying is this and I, and I say this with all um, as much compassion and understanding as I possibly can what what they're saying is this. I love the made-up version of Jesus whom I formed by my opinions and preferences rather than the Jesus of the Scriptures. And if you have someone in your life who's in that space, um, I, would, I, would, I would urge you to love them deeply. Love them so deeply because scripture tells us they'll know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. I would say pray for them deeply. Because opinions do not give us eternal life. Jesus does. I would encourage you to take this list and make it your own. Cut it out. Put it on the inside of your Bible. Make it the back screen of your phone. Do something with it so it can remind you of who Jesus is. Who's the foundation of our faith. Uh, Paul asks, or Saul still, asks a second question. He says this, say this question with me. Lord, what do you want me to do? You know, if you would dare to really ask this question. Because when we ask it, it we must ask it with submission and obedience. 
Now, Jesus is interesting. Jesus only told him what to do at that moment. Saul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, get yourself cleaned up and go somewhere. And when you get there, I'll tell you what to do next. Could you imagine if Jesus just gave him a little bit of window of what the next few years were going to be like for Paul? What if he just took out that portion of uh, Corinthians where Paul says, man, I've had a tough life. And then he starts, <laughs> he starts giving his resume uh, since becoming a follower of Jesus. And he goes, I've been in prison this many times. I've been shipwrecked this many times. I've been lost. I've been hungry. I've been beaten. I've been betrayed. I've been tortured. What if Jesus said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, I need you to get shipwrecked a couple of times. There's going to be a couple of prison sentences. You're going to write a whole lot of letters. And you might get beaten a handful of times. Lord, what do you want me to do? Could you imagine if he said, well, one day you're going to go on three missionary journeys. And, and the world is, is going to literally be upside down because of people you've impacted with the way, this thing you've been persecuting. Could you imagine if he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and, and Jesus just says, well, if you only knew what I had, but for right now, all I need you to do is this. Pick yourself up and go to this place. And when you get there, I'll tell you what to do next. <laughs> right? How many of you feel like, Lord, I need the five-year plan? Because if I have the five-year plan, I, I can help you out with the five-year plan. And I can help you get from here to here. But Lord, I need the five-year plan. And all Jesus is saying to do is, you should give away this money to someone who needs it. Or we say, Lord, if you could just give me a window on retirement, if you could just show me what retirement's going to look like, then I'll know how to prepare. And Lord, you want me to prepare, right? So yeah, just show me what retirement looks like so I can prepare. And Jesus says, you're about to foster 12 kids in three years. I'm firmly convinced Jesus doesn't specifically answer our prayer request for our own good. Right? We ask this question and we kind of know what's coming next. And God responds with what Saul was to do that day. Remember, we've talked about this principle before, and maybe you want to write it down, but it's this. Your behaviors will always follow your beliefs. Or you can say it this way, what you believe will determine your behavior. Last night we went, uh, Libby and I, Libby's brother was in town from Ohio and we went to an Emeralds game. They're a high A minor league baseball game uh, in Eugene. Um, uh, San Francisco Giants, high A, yeah. And they played Hillsboro, which is the farm team for the Arizona Diamondbacks. It was pretty fun. Uh, we sat in a spot where there was no um, breeze whatsoever. Oh. So I just, you see me right now? Like 20 times what you're seeing right now. I would, this is what I would literally do. I had this, it was not yesterday's handkerchief. I don't, you don't want to see that one. I would use it, and I would take it out, and I would drape it on the chair in front of me. And I'd try to wait a half inning to use it again because by then this would get mostly dry and then I would just do it again. 
It was fun. They have frozen lemonade, which is just fantastic. It's one of God's great creations. Um, at a minor league game, they really want you to get involved in the game, so they do all of these things for audience participation, right? Now, some of the things they do are really subtle, and you don't actually know they're doing it to you until you, all of a sudden you're clapping your hands or you're doing something. You're like, wait a minute, how did, how did I start doing this? Well, they encourage you to do it, right? So they would play these different bits of songs, and all of a sudden you would just respond to them. For instance, they would do this. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Oh, come on, help me out. Right, George? You think they would have figured this out, right? Da-da-da-da-da-da! Uh, they would do this one. I don't know that song personally, but apparently it's a popular song. They would do this one. Ready? Listen to this one. Right? When I was growing up in church, we sang it this way. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, then listen. Then your life will surely show it. And I'm in this baseball game last night, and I'm clapping my hands, and all I can think of and your life will surely show it. Paul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, I 100% guarantee most of us in our life at some point have said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And in some way, shape, or fashion, he revealed himself to us. And maybe it was the, uh, the love of your parents, Maybe it was the love of a Sunday school teacher, or maybe it was a worship team or a preacher, but someone directed you to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit intervened, and you were shown who Jesus was. Those nine things we talked about, many of them were covered, and many of them were revealed to you. But if we're ever going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have to get to a point where we ask this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Just obey right now with what you know you should be doing. Because here's the thing, I can't give you a five-year plan, but I guarantee you there's some way Jesus, asking, Jesus is asking you to obey him today. And I don't know what that is, but I know there's some way he wants you to obey today. Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, if you do this one thing here, then I'll tell you what to do next. And when you do that next thing, then I'll tell you what to do next. And when you do this thing, I'll tell you what to do next. And when you do this thing, and most of us are over here wondering, how do I get over there? <laughs> well, you, you, you get right here. So maybe it's your finances. And maybe some of you are just struggling with, how do I, how do I make sense of giving my money away to the church, to the missions team. I'm fine with the garage sale because I didn't need that junk in the first place. But you're asking me for cold, hard cash? I don't know how to make sense of that. Great. Can you today give a dollar? Can you give five? Can you give 10? 
what can you do today that simply says to the Lord, I'm obeying you from here. I don't know what to do next, and I'm kind of scared of what to do next, but what can I, how can you obey today? Maybe it's with, um, maybe you just have a hard time praying, and on Sundays it comes fairly easy, um, but yeah, you have a hard time praying during the week. Well, well let's, let's just start with today. And what can you pray for today? What can, you, what can you thank him for today? And what can you ask him for his help for today? Maybe that's the way you need to pray today. What can you thank him for? And, and how can you ask for his, his wisdom in your life? Lord, what do you want me to do? If we can get ourselves conditioned not to worry about what's two years down the road or five years down the road, but if we can get ourselves conditioned to just obeying him today and then again today and then again another day, you would be surprised the growth in your faith. And this is where we see Saul end up. We continue the narrative and it says this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. No kidding. <laughs> After what they've just seen, right? Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It seems that Saul was so shaken by the experience that he was unable to eat or drink for three days. All he could do was sit there in his blindness. No doubt a humbling experience. And in these three days of both the blindness and deprivation, Saul was in the process of dying to himself. And it would only be after three days of dying to himself that he would then receive that resurrection of life from Jesus. Don't you, don't you love the way Jesus um, just paints a picture with everything he does? Saul is there and he's blind for how many days? Where he's in darkness, where he can't make sense of anything, where he feels like his life is over. He just wants to know what's next. And after three days, the resurrection, the life from Jesus, just like Jesus arose. There's an interesting detail that's tucked away here in verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, again, I mentioned it earlier, in later chapters, uh, I believe it's Acts 22 and 29, we learn that although these, follower, these travelers were right there with him, they never ended up following Jesus. They stood there with him, speechless, they saw everything, they heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus, and it turns out they never ended up making a commitment to Jesus. I end this warning with this. There were also witnesses that were close to him, but never experienced the life-changing power of Jesus. Church, you can be close, you can hear the voice of God, you can be right there, and you can miss the life he has waiting for you. Don't let that be you. 
here's the thing. The church, our church doesn't offer a cure. If you're watching online, there's no quick fix. What we have to offer is death and resurrection. What we have to offer is the messy, inconvenient, gut-wrenching, never-ending work of healing and reconciliation. We're here to offer grace. But you must experience it personally. You cannot borrow it. That doesn't count. You can't get near it. That doesn't count. This is not horseshoes nor grenades. You have to experience it personally. You must experience the grace of God. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at rosebergfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.